Bonjour. I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. Yeah, my guest today is Michael Schneerson, author of Bugsy Siegel, The Dark Side of the American Dream. So, uh, Michael, uh, James Kaplan got uh, George Gershwin, not, pardon me, not yep. George, Irving Berlin, and yes. you got Bugsy Signal. Was that the luck of the draw? How did that happen? Uh, <clears throat> I must say I have no regrets about it. Um, you know, it's a, a, a very funny thing. I mean, this series, the Jewish Live series, Great now series. has published... Yeah, they've they've published fifty, <clears throat> excuse me, of these books, and uh, they're all short biographies, and they're all of Jewish subjects. And every one until Bugsy was, uh, you know, an honorable, uh, accomplished, <clears throat> you know, titan of one field or another. Well, Bugsy Bugsy and was accomplished in his field. He was a <laughs> he was accomplished, and in fact, it was that very thought that sort of led the uh, editors uh, to say, well, why not do uh, uh, an organized uh, a Jewish gangster? <clears throat> I mean, why not tell that part of the Jewish American story, um, which, uh, you know, is every bit as, uh, uh, every bit as evident uh, and important uh, in, in, in the story of Jews on the Lower East Side in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. So <clears throat> they asked if I would I would do it. I was Why thrilled. you, Michael? What had you done to uh, intrigue them that you would understand this <clears throat> Yes, what had I done? In truth, Terrence, not that much. Um, I, I, I have written seven or eight books. Uh, the only one that touched on Las Vegas was my, uh, my biography, a really memoir, of Harry Belafonte. Uh, mm. The great entertainer, great entertainer, who actually who was spoke in perfect Vegas. Yiddish, by the way. What? He was a Yiddish speaker. Yes, <clears throat> yes, and and he was, of course, a uh, uh, a great uh, uh, sort of civil rights activist. Who early on, his his civil rights consisted of 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 going out to Vegas and entertaining there, and insisting that he be put in the uh, actual hotels there, not out at the edge of town where all the other black entertainers were kept. Um, so I was intrigued by that itself, the sort of the early Vegas days, what that was like. But uh, honestly, uh, 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 it was to some extent um, just uh, talking a good game because I, I knew how much fun it would, it would be to do Bugsy, and so I just talked them into it and got lucky. Had you seen uh, Jimmy Toback's uh, script for uh, Bugsy? Prior I haven't seen the script. I, I certainly, I certainly uh, saw the movie, and I think it's uh, a terrific movie. I, I think it's almost as good as The Godfather. I mean, not as as sprawling, <clears throat> um, but damn good. Um, damn good. And, and, I, you know, you know. Once I was able to accept Warren as uh, as, as Bugsy, <laughs> that, well, that was hard in the beginning, but I, I as it went on, I I, I got it. And you know, a lot yeah. of what you're writing, uh, I, I see the images from the film just jump back at me some of them did absolutely and and uh, uh believe me i took a few things from the movie uh mm. um you know saying that they were from the movie we are not entirely sure they're true um but uh it absolutely um you know filled the screen i i, I felt it was a terrific movie <clears throat> and um 
I, I was grateful to have it. I mean, in a way, it would have been nice to to start in on this without a a, a Warren Beatty Bugsy movie because right. maybe someone would make a movie of my book. But at the same time, it was great to sort of see how uh, a wonderful director had had envisioned it. Um, Barry Levinson. And, <clears throat> yeah, and I'll say that um, you know one thing that proved very helpful to me as I embarked on this was that there were. Uh, only a few biographies ever written of Bugsy. I mean, there were some really crummy ones that, mm -hmm. you know, aren't even reliable. They don't count. Almost um, hagiographies. Really, yeah, <clears throat> exactly. <clears throat> uh, things that could be sold at, uh, you know, the counters of casinos. Um, but uh, there were two really interesting biographies, each different from the other. One was done by a very painstaking professor in St. Louis, who literally found every single newspaper uh, citation, I'm sure, that has ever been uh, done uh, uh, with Bugsy. Um, so I could just, you know, go to all those newspapers right away. I, I didn't have to find them the first time myself. Um, but I think it's fair to say that he was, that fellow was was more focused on the, the, the facts than the sort of color and sweep of the story. Then there was this other guy, <clears throat> uh, Dean Jennings, who had, been around in the 60s, and uh, not only did he have more of a sense of Bugsy in his times, but he still had a few live great sources to talk to, like George Raff, the actor, um, and right, that's, Virginia That's a generous, generous description, George, George Raff, the actor. <laughs> yeah, well, he was sort of a gangster actor, wasn't he? Yeah, but, yeah it was a character, yeah, yeah. But he was uh, he was right there at the beginning of you know gangster noir mm -hmm. movies, um, starting with you know Scarface. So, and in fact, <clears throat> I mean we're jumping ahead here, and we'll go back in a second. But uh, it's very interesting that when Bugsy came out to L.A., uh, it was 1933. The prohibition had just ended. He needed a new game. And there was Bugsy. Uh, there was uh, George Raft to greet him as an old friend. And uh, take him around to the, you know, the various racetracks and introduce him to people and get him going. So actually, George Raft was incredibly important and, as it turns out, a great storyteller. And so the second biography that I mentioned was filled with wonderful stories um, that George Raft had told this guy back in the 60s. So anyway. Yeah, you, um, cite, you cite him frequently in the book. Let's yeah. go back to the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, how does the uh, – let's talk about the immigrant experience. Well, the immigrant experience. But first, I just want to make a comment. You know, it, in a way, Bugsy, you know, at Jews, we didn't have a lot of baseball players, but we had Hank Greenberg and Sandy <laughs> Koufax. Okay. Right. We didn't have, uh, you know, a, a lot of areas where we didn't have a lot of uh, Sid Luckman in football, for example. But, yeah. and, and in a way, we have Bugsy and Meyer. You know, we have uh, in the pantheon of gangsters, we're up there. You know, we're. The, you're we're right. I mean, there in, are in a, in a bizarre way. We're kind of proud of uh, Bugsy. Sure. Can I say that? <laughs> I, I would say you could throw a few more in there, like oh, sure. uh, uh, Arnold Brian Rothstein and, oh, you know. Arnold, but, yeah, Arnold he, Virginius. <clears throat> exactly. But but your point is 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 well taken. Um, there is a, a great deal of pride now in these characters. And I think it's because uh, um, people realize that when when Ben and his family and <clears throat> Meyer and his family came from, uh, you know, the shtetls and, and Eastern Europe, um, they really uh, were so desperately poor, and there was no way they were going to earn their way out 
by the American dream. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. If they were going to succeed, they had to turn to crime. But the thing is, <clears throat> unlike the Italian mafia, the Jewish gangsters, uh, maybe this is romanticizing them, but I'm going to say it anyway, I think they understood that that they didn't want to stay in this game any longer than they had to. Mm-hmm. Um, they, 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 you know, arrived on the Lower East Side. They learned how to shoot. They learned how to set, you know, peddlers' carts to fire. And they, they, they knew how to get in, in, into the bootlegging game, more to the point. Um, but they actually envisioned getting past all that um, and, and, and going legit at some point, if not for themselves than for their children, which is why you have the situation you have now where the Italian mafia is still very much alive, despite the authorities' best efforts to kill it, and each next generation of the mafia um, wants to perpetuate um, that the, the success of, of, of the mafia, whereas um, Jewish gangsters died out after one generation, um, and the reason was they didn't want to remain gangsters. So. And they started building reform synagogues. Yeah, right, right. Um, the, um, yeah, because so going back to it again, you know, not everybody had Irving Berlin's talent. That was one way out of the ghetto. Well, that's that's right, and I, I make that point in the book. Um, you, you know, uh, there were <clears throat> were wonderful entertainers, uh, Jewish, who, you know, Eddie went, Cantor. of course, to... Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly, Eddie Cantor, um, uh, who... Um, you know, went directly to vaudeville from from their family's poor tenement apartments, and um, they they had the talent to uh, you know the Marx Brothers. I mean, uh, all sorts of um, really interesting uh, examples. But you know, they were still the by far the minority. Uh, uh, you, you had to have an awful lot of talent to get out of the out of the ghetto that way. Sure. Well, you know, prohibition comes along, and we have, uh, speaking of gamblers, we have, you know, Arnold the Genius Rothstein, played by right. David Jansen in the movie like 50 years ago. But uh-huh. super elegant, uh, very refined, very much almost like, you know, a wasp businessman uh, with a slight Jewish accent, not even a Jewish accent, he's on the Upper West Side with the German Jews. I know. Isn't that amazing? I, it's, it, 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 it sort of remains a mystery why this guy wanted to leave his upper middle class Jewish uh, family uh, from from the Upper West Side and <clears throat> make his money as a gambler um, and, and risk his life. But he did. He, he loved gambling. He was, of course, a magnificent dresser. He taught all these gangsters how to dress, uh, how to, you know, cut a swath through the, the speakeasies. Um, and, of course, he taught, taught them. Taught Hollywood how to dress. Every Hollywood gangster. Yeah. You know, exactly. Learn from that. Um, but he, you know, uh, more to the point, I mean, he um, uh, knew at the very beginning um, of prohibition uh, how to how to make the most money uh, in in sort of the safest way. And that was to, you know, go to England, get your booze there, get the highest quality booze. Don't go for the low low cut stuff mm-hmm. um, and appeal to your market, which was you know, wealthy New Yorkers who wanted to keep drinking the good stuff. And well, speaking of Jews, you know, Bronfman, Sam, and Julian Rosenstiel. Yeah. Uh, of course, they they were very much in it. Um, and uh, so, so Rothstein had his gang. And uh, it, as I say in the book, 
um, it was the serendipity of, of a meeting at a, um, uh, someone's uh, bar mitzvah <laughs> in Brooklyn um, that Rothstein met Meyer Lansky. And Meyer Lansky was about, <clears throat> I don't know, 16 years old. And he liked the kid and said, why don't you join me in, uh, in this new enterprise? Right. You can <laughs> you know, drive the uh, bootlegging vans and so forth. And Meyer said, great, and I have this friend I'd, I'd like to bring along. He's, he, he, you'll love him. And, uh, that, and that was Ben Siegel. Um, and Ben was, was younger than Meyer. So Ben, when he started out on this at the start of, well, we can do the math. You know, he was born in 1906. Uh, Prohibition comes along in 1920. So he's 14 years old right. um, when, when he embarks on this. And within months, it became apparent that this kid was um, – not only very effective and efficient, um, but uh, but awfully quick with the trigger um, and and terrifying. Uh, e- even as he he charmed his fellow gangsters. Well, I think we all. I don't know where you grew up, but I grew you know I grew up in Brooklyn, and uh-huh. we all knew kids. Yeah, like I can that. hear that in your voice, actually. <laughs> some you know some guy who's five foot four, but you don't want to cross him. You know, you, you yeah. it looks like a, a mellow, easy guy, and most of the time he is. But if you set him off, whoa, it's an atomic bomb. It's totally yeah. dangerous. The uh, Let's go back to the booze business, because that's where they, these guys got really made their bones for a better part of 10 years. They did. Uh, they were, um, you know, indeed... Uh, <clears throat> Bringing bringing the booze in from Canada, um, uh, getting it to the the different distributors, um, and uh, uh, very quickly making a fortune. In fact, <clears throat> it's incredible to realize that Ben, uh, by the age of you know fifteen or sixteen, <laughs> oh maybe seventeen, um, was had moved from from the Lower East Side from the the world he had desperately wanted to escape, he had moved to the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, he, he was living in a, in a suite there, um, and uh, a, a few of his fellow gangsters were also there. I think Lucky Luciano was down the hall. And um, there's a very funny uh, scene in that uh, wonderful uh, uh, Dean Jennings biography of Bugsy going over to the window of the Waldorf Astoria and dropping water balloons on, on, on the policeman below. And, and Albert Anastasia says, Ben, why are you doing that? that, that that's so immature. <laughs> and he says, well, because I like it and I can do it. Um, you, you know, it, it gives you a little sense of this guy who was on the one hand cold blooded, you know, in a terrifying way, but at the same time, still sort of a, a kid. Um, so anyway, he, he 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 does this. He he makes this fortune. He and Meyer together are actually wonderfully complementary because, as as you know, I'm sure you know Meyer was um, calm, businesslike, uh, and in his own way, completely honest. If you, if you did business with Meyer, you would get what you were promised, um, and and it it kept the business uh, working as it should, and it it kept Meyer Lansky alive. But as they uh, said, on the other Hyman, hand, Roth, Hyman Roth yeah. always made money for his partners. Yeah, there you go. And uh, uh, and 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 Ben, uh, maybe that wasn't his first priority, um, but he was, of course, so uh, effective that um, uh, you know he 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 could help Meyer, uh, you know, get what get done what needed to be done. 
Um, and so, you know, keep in mind, too, that as the 20s unfolded, um, uh, Meyer and, and Ben weren't just driving these bootlegging vans. Um, they, they had what they call, uh, you know, the, the bugs and Meyer mob, mm -hmm. uh, th they were essentially killers for hire. Um, not so much hired by Ben Ross, by Arnold Rothstein, who, as you know, uh, unfortunately was shot and killed in about 1927, um, as his gambling habit got the better of him. Um, but, um, but others hired them and, uh, uh, and, and they were pretty indiscriminating about who they would who they would kill uh, if someone wanted them to do so for money. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and there you can see that of the two, it was really Ben who was the, the more lethal. Uh, Meyer was, you know, sitting in the back uh, doing the numbers. Um, but, you know, they were complimentary. They were best friends of each other um, really through their lives. In fact, it's fascinating um, if we have time to talk about, yeah, we have you know, time. This is not scheduled radio. Ben's, uh, yeah. If we have time to talk about Ben's death, uh, there's, uh, you know, a, a, a few critical uh, appearances uh, toward the end um, that suggest Meyer was trying to keep Ben from being killed, or possibly, uh, in the end, having to participate in the orders to have him killed because of the money that he seemed to be skimming from the flamingo. But anyway, yes, we'll get to that. Um, it was the great, the great scene with uh, Bill Graham playing Lucky Luciano and Ben Kingsley as Meyer Lansky. Yeah. The thing you have to remember about Ben is he has no respect for money. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's so true. And, um, and it, it's actually something, yes, Meyer Lansky said that others said it about him. It, it was kind of a game for him. And, and, you know, I think we have to to mention here Ben's father, um, mm -hmm. who came from Eastern Europe with nothing, and uh, uh, instead of you know realizing his own American dream, he ends up in a pants pressing factory for you know working for pennies a day for the rest of his working life. Um, and you know, Ben just was not going to let that happen to him. Uh, and nor was Meyer. Uh, both of them had father fixations, I think mm -hmm. it's fair to say. Um, so, um, uh, you know, money meant nothing to him in the sense that uh, he always felt he could go out and, and get more. Um, sure. He was that effective, that, that successful. And um, so in, in that sense, money had no meaning. You know, he would, he would spend it, he would, it would, he would go through it, and then he'd get on to the next assignment for, you know, the, the, the Ben and Myers mob. I didn't agonize about paying the mortgage. There was always money, money to be made. And I don't know if yeah. it was Lansky uh, who said this, but it sounds like him, you know, uh, what does he say? Uh, there is no, there is no such thing as bad money. Money is good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember that quote. I can't remember who, who said it, but I yes. I, it, just, it wasn't Lansky, but we can attribute it. Nobody will argue yeah, we, with it. it the, the, certainly the spirit uh, of the enterprise. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting that uh, toward the end of the 20s, you've got um, some, some serious uh, internecine warfare mm -hmm. going on. Uh, the, the War of the Mustache Peets, as it was called. The Castomari. It, it, yeah, the, the, these uh, uh, Sicilian uh, godfathers who came over. Actually, I, I think this is true. I think Mussolini actually banished them from, from Italy, which is 
kind of mind blowing. But anyway, they they arrive. They they have a battle for turf that lasts several years, and you know many many gangsters are found dead on the sidewalks in New York. Um, and uh, uh, at some point, um, Lucky Luciano and Meyer um, and Ben um, all decide that this is just not helping anybody, and they you know kill off both of these top uh, uh, mafia leaders and. Um, uh, and, and they they not only do this to get rid of the competition, but they they do it to um, uh, create a, a real business of, of of the you know the work they're doing here. Um, yes, people have to be killed every so once in a while, but from now on, we're going to be a syndicate. We're going to um, you know set this up. There's there's going to be a, a senior counsel, if you will, that decides whether a, a killing can be carried out or not. The, the money is going to be, you know, apportioned this way and that. Um, you know, it, 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 we saw that scene, in a sense, in The Godfather. Sure. Um, and it certainly uh, is true here, so that by um, 1931 or two, with a few, um, you know, hiccups, <laughs> the syndicate does take charge. And of course, the other thing is that that prohibition is coming to an end, and um, you know the syndicate; uh, these guys are cast of characters here. They all realize full well that they're going to have to get uh, a new game going because uh, when prohibition ends, you know they'll be out of business. Um, and it was then that Meyer uh, went to Florida and made that his turf. And Ben went out to L.A., and, and that became his. I think when, you know, when he gets to L.A., I think it's interesting to remember uh, two things come to mind. Uh, one, how in a generation uh, the gangsters had become legitimate. And I'm thinking yeah. specifically of, of, of Moses, Moses Annenberg, who ran the race wire. Yes. Because, you know, when now they're listening to NPR, there's often uh, money being given by the Annenberg Foundation. <laughs> you, know? you know, it's funny you say that, Terrence. I, I think of... The connection when I see it on PBS as well. Yeah, and I think he owned the Philadelphia Inquirer too, if I'm not mistaken. But uh -huh. the Morning Telegraph was his paper, which I used to read when I was 12 years old. I had a bit of a Runyon-esque uh, childhood. But uh -huh. I, I think to, to put it in perspective, I think it's important to talk to an audience that may not be aware of it, just how important horse tra horse racing was in the 30s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, you you didn't mention uh, the racing form, right? Which was well, no, I think the Morning Telegraph and the racing form, I, I kind of put together as one. Put together, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be because um, you know, Annenberg was the one to see the potential of of, of giving betters that information, um, and more to the point, starting the race wire, uh, where you could you could. Uh, Bet illegally uh, by telegraphing the results to the local uh, consortium of, of bookies and um, uh, and make an enormous amount of money as long as you could uh, fend off the competition. It's um, like off-track betting, only it's, it wasn't totally legal. Yeah, exactly. And and there were many lawsuits uh, brought uh, against and for the, the the telegraph companies. What I mean, there was it AT and T? No, maybe it wasn't. It was it was. Uh, a couple been, of these companies, big national. Ma Bell, before it was. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, that was one of them, I think. And um, you know, they were always in court defending their right to um, to telegraph uh, race results. Um, they would say, you know, this is entirely legal. 
well, the only illegal part is after the information gets up to the bookies. Um, at any rate, Annenberg was uh, incredibly powerful, able to really make a monopoly of this business until um, until the feds got him, uh, and um, y- you know the the whole business therefore splintered, uh, and that's when. Um, uh, ben, along with others, uh, jumped in to um, create his own uh, race wire, which became a very, very successful business indeed. Well, you know, it's also when he came out there, he, uh, as, as the movie depicts very clearly, he had issues with uh, Jack Dragna. Uh, and yeah, Joe, Joe Dragna? Jack, 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 you're right. Jack, Jack, Jack Dragna, Jack. yeah. Who was kind of a, uh, um, kind of a, f- a freelance um, mafia don himself. He, mm-hmm. he, had had a lot of experience in prohibition and and now was trying to figure out what to do post prohibition and he um you know he kind of operated on his own um but enough in in concert with with the the mob back east that everybody uh you know kind of kept a business and didn't kill each other what are three thousand miles away? They had a little bit of distance to be safe. Exactly, and also the great. Uh, although you don't get into it in much detail, but the <laughs> the great performance by Harvey Keitel as Meyer Harris Cohen. Uh, that's, oh, that scene yeah. in the spa is just a knockout. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, he's wonderful in that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, well, there's a, so much great color that uh, unfolds as as you, as as Ben gets to L.A. Um, I love it that he. Uh, he calls himself a sportsman. Um, you know, he's um, uh, a guy who goes to the track every every day. Uh, early on, seems to develop uh, connections to the track that enable him to place winning bets nearly all the time. Um, and you know, sportsman. Uh, well, who knows what else it it means except that we know what it means. <laughs> it means it means gambling plus, you know getting a cut of the track plus uh forcing uh, uh nightclubs to give you well, a, plus, a, a plus slice girls, you know extortion you know, del, del webb was a sportsman all these guys yeah. that owned uh, sporting t- uh, sports clubs were sportsmen, right as they say and and del webb was of course eventually the guy who built uh flamingo, flamingo. um but yes yeah, so so uh ben was a sportsman he um he he got established uh with a couple big rental houses and then decided that um to be you know to cut the kind of profile swath he really wanted to he needed his own mansion and um the mansion he bought or he built i'm sorry uh is still there up up uh, in holmby hills and dolphin drive there you go and and it's a remarkable uh edifice uh that you know, you can only imagine how much it would have cost in today's dollars. Um, uh, it's, it's actually, I think, not long ago, it was on the market for about $20 million, um, which gives you a sense of what it must have been worth back in 1938. Yeah, I think uh, he tried to sell it for $85,000. Uh, well, that's right. Um, uh, but but first, he, he, he built this thing. Um, he, he would occasionally have his... Um, all-suffering wife uh, come out for visits with their two young daughters. Uh, everything would be very familial. They'd be, you know, um, uh, videoing uh, the kids in the pool. Um, but very soon, um, Esta and the, the girls would be sent packing uh, back to the home that the house that Ben had uh, 
uh, bought for them in Scarsdale of all places. Um, <laughs> in fact, it, it, I, I came across uh, a um, um, a what do you call it? Uh, a deed. Oh, no, not a deed, but the, um, the the yearly forms that you would, or every 10 years, you'd fill out the... Um, the census. Thank you, the census. Um, it's, it's early in the morning okay. here, <laughs> Terrence. Uh, forgive me. But yes, in, in a census report of uh, 1935 or 6, uh, it says who's living at this house in, in Scarsdale. And it's not just Ben and Esther and the two girls. It's three employees who are all black or I think they're called Negroes. Uh, one is a butler, one, you know, uh, one is a driver, whatever. So it's amazing that uh, Ben um, was able to, uh, you know, deal with his family this way, uh, have this sort of uh, household staff, and back in L.A. <laughs> to be building his dream house. Uh, but that's exactly what he was doing, um, along with these various, um, along with these various uh, extortion schemes to uh to get money from restaurants and nightclubs and that sort of thing um and uh, uh at the same time um becoming uh kind of a character in in hollywood with aspirations of being an actor himself mm-hmm. um it, it there's a wonderful uh, scene uh in the book which which you uh, probably read it, it sounds no, like I, I, read the book. I, I did read it i'm not larry king yeah, <laughs> rest his soul. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, and um, so uh, he would um, uh, he would go with George Raff to the studios. Uh, George Raff would do his scenes, and uh, Ben would be sitting, uh, you know, in the shadows. And then when they when they took a break, um, Ben would whip out this sixteen uh, millimeter camera and say, "Okay." You know, George. Now, now, film me as I as I play you, <laughs> and and they did this several times. George, you know, knew uh, that it made sense to humor his his old friend, um, not not get him pissed off. No. Um, and so Ben would actually film the scenes uh, for the movie that that George was in, and uh, George later said, you know, he was pretty good. Um, he he auditioned for a few things, but. Um, but it, it became clear to everyone, even to Ben, um, that this could end badly. <laughs> you know, if he if he tried out for a role and and the guy didn't, uh, the producer didn't take him, uh, that famously incandescent temper might might. Uh, well, I could see Har- Harry Cohn and Ben having a negotiation over a role. Yeah, exactly. right. Because Harry didn't... was just one step ahead of being a gangster himself. Right. Exactly. Um, uh, and uh, uh, as I recall. Harry was close to Gene Harlow, and Gene Harlow was close to gangsters, and and Ben was enamored of Gene Harlow, and there, you know, it was kind of a whole circle of people out there at that time. Well, you know, um, you mentioned Gene Harlow, and it takes me to a, an episode you describe in the book, in which I have a newfound respect for Jimmy Stewart. I always yes. liked Mister Smith, but apparently uh, <laughs> he had no fear. And uh, he was having, he was not happy with uh, uh, Ben's behavior at a party, and he called him on it, and yep. uh, Ben didn't take him up. Well, uh, you know, later, I guess Jimmy and and his wife were, you know, asking each other, wondering aloud why why Ben hadn't taken out a gun and plugged him right there, uh, possibly because um, 
you know, the room was filled with actors and it would have looked bad. Um, and maybe because uh, uh, Ben had a kind of respect for people who did stand up for him. Sure. Um, certain people. <laughs> it helped if they were Hollywood celebrities. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so he didn't do the movie thing. The movie career he set aside. He was also... Um, trying to uh, elbow his way into um, into the film business, um, uh, you know, by um, uh, creating a, um, what, what am I looking for, a, um, you know, a whole uh, union, uh, you know, uh, to, to represent, in this case, the film extras. Um, and uh, well, this is also uh, this is immediately following Willie Byoff and Johnny Roselli, the Chicago. Exactly. The outfit was very, very seriously into that business. Talk about exactly. that, and then talk about what Ben decided to do. Yeah, and well, Ben would have liked to cut them out of the deal, of course, and and take over their uh, unions. Um, um, but the mob said no. You know, we these guys are doing fine. Don't don't mess up a good thing here. So uh, uh, Ben, uh, as an alternative, started his own uh, union just for the film extras. It was a pretty clever idea. You know, you, you need extras in every movie. You can't have a day's filming without them. Um, so uh, so he, he did this. I, I, you know, it got him some money. The studios later, a couple of them were quoted the top guys saying, you know, uh, yes, we, he, he came into the office and he wanted money. And they would... You know, they pay him off once or twice. It doesn't seem to have become a big thing in his business, uh, sportsman that he was. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he also just um, enjoyed um, making his way around the town socially and getting to know, um, uh, getting to know more actors. Um, you know, that's what the house was all about, getting them over, you know, having gambling games in the house itself. Um, and there was a woman who... Uh, became especially helpful to him uh, in this pursuit, Dorothy DeFrasso. Yeah, and she's a character. She, um, she had inherited uh, millions uh, from her father's uh, leather goods uh, company somewhere in the Midwest. And then she'd married a few times, and her latest husband was the Count DeFrasso, who had a title and was in Italy, but it was the classic thing where he had the title, she had the money, uh, so they, they married, although in their case, they rarely saw each other. Uh, and Dorothy, uh, became quite the, the hostess in LA. And the story has it that one day she was at the track, uh, and she turned to see this very handsome fellow, beautifully dressed. It was of course, Ben, uh, she had just, um, uh, broken up with Gary Cooper. Um, and Who, by so the way, she, she said, taught, you know that? she taught him how to dress and taught yeah. him manners. He's very much of the persona he later became uh, was from her. Yes, exactly right. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, she she was, I mean, she was a good 10 or 15 years older than Ben. I, 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 I would be very surprised if they had much of a romance going on, maybe at the very beginning. Um, she was an attractive woman, but she was, I think, in her mid-40s by the time they met and Ben was was all about you know thirty thirty two so I would say that it was more just a um, you know a, 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 a not a business but um, uh, something that worked well for each of them together that 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 she would have these parties he would be uh, 
the sort of co-host um, and uh, it's kind of uh, a walker is the term. Literally. Yeah, that's right. I, I think a walker is exactly the way to put it. Um, and uh, people were astonished. Uh, there's a couple of quotes in the book, you know, people uh, who would come into Dorothy DeFrasso's uh, latest dinners and see Ben beautifully dressed, you know, on the receiving line. They, they just, you know, their jaws dropped. But um, anyway, it, uh, it worked for both of them. And it also um, led to a couple of uh, uh, Ben's most uh, preposterous chapters. Um, <laughs> he uh, uh, he was sitting with Laurie with Dorothy DeFrasso at one point, and she said, "You know, I've just had this um, fascinating conversation with a guy who knows where there is a huge cache of, of buried treasure. It's in this island off Costa Rica, um, and here's the map. You can find it." <laughs> And it it just sort of underscores how um, naive, almost childlike, uh, Ben was uh, at the idea of a buried treasure. Uh, it was like a kid. Um, so he uh, rented a boat, a, a, a boat big enough to uh, have a crew of, of eight or ten people, um, including Dorothy, and they set out um, – for for Costa Rica and uh, eventually ended up on some godforsaken island where the treasure was supposed to be. It was like going to be $60 million. Um, actually, at one point, the, the Costa Rican military boarded the ship and, and uh, Costa Rica itself, and they they insisted that, that whatever treasure was found, they would claim a third of it. And um, so as they sailed off, Ben said to Dorothy, well, you know, it's depressing, but at least we still have $60 million. Um, Anyway, they get to the island, and it turns out to be nothing but this godforsaken rocky, you know, uh, rocky mountain uh, in in uh, in the middle of nowhere. And they they've brought along uh, explosives, and they, you know, uh, spend days setting them off, and of course never find anything. They they go back in this uh, boat and run into some very bad weather. Uh, this is not apparently Ben's. Um, most honorable uh, moment he when he could he left the boat for Panama uh, uh, leaving Dorothy on the boat along with <laughs> with others um, and when he got home there you know it was so um, preposterous that it made the news and it, it, it turned out actually that the the authorities had been had become quite interested in this trip um, because um uh, they were on the trail of uh, the the world's most notorious uh, uh, racketeer, Lepke, um, who had been on the lam for by then a year or so or more. And they thought maybe the, that uh, uh, Ben had uh, taken Lepke off, or, you know, dropped him off somewhere, picked him up, you know, uh, but at any rate been, been his uh, helper through this period. Um, it was not true. Uh, Lepke was probably back in a... Uh, uh, he was uh, hiding out in Brooklyn, is there? In Brooklyn, in a Chinese restaurant or a dance hall above the restaurant, something like this. No, so, but you know, it, go ahead, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, Ben, you know, ben died, he was only 41, and I would say yeah. that his, his death was hastened by his relationship with Virginia Hill. Try to explain that. I mean, or we could probably, there's probably lots of ways that we could describe this that we won't describe on, on air, what that attraction was. She's fundamentally, she was what we would call in Brooklyn in those days, a hula. 
You know, she was a, a loose, a loose woman, shall we say, with none of the the elegance uh, or beauty even that uh, uh, you know yeah. other women in Hollywood had. What was it that that kept them together? Because this is not this is not an Ed Benning we're looking at here. No, it's not an Ed Benning. And actually, if you look at the pictures um, of Virginia <clears throat> later um, at the uh, uh, you know the criminal. Um, the gangster, what am I thinking of? The, the, the organized... The uh, commission? No, she died before that. No, the one in 1950, 51 or so. Okay. Um, I, it'll come back to me. But um, <clears throat> uh, yes, yeah, she was not a, 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 a beautiful woman, but she had a toughness that really appealed to Ben. And I would say that um, uh, their their backgrounds were so similar uh, that this this created a, a kind of you know chemistry between them. I mean, Virginia having grown up uh, in a poor uh, town in, in Alabama, somehow you know in its own way, just as um, uh, hopeless a, a scenario as as Ben on the Lower East Side, and 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 Virginia uh, found her way up to Chicago. Is a very young woman, um, got work uh, at the Chicago World's Fair, and seems to have met um, uh, a number of gangsters uh, who, you know, found her charming young thing, um, uh, including one who is, who is the local accountant. Um, and <clears throat> Virginia became uh, a trusted uh, carrier of, of, of money, so much money in these paper bags that one person referred to it as lettuce. It was like uh, mm -hmm. you know, bags of lettuce. Um, and this ties in with the race wire because that's where a lot of the money was coming from. And uh, Virginia, at any rate, uh, became a, a, a trusted carrier. She began, uh, you know, romancing uh, various gangsters, including uh, Joe Dotto, um, is it Dodo? Joe? Dodo, yeah. Joe Dodo, Adonis. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, very powerful, dangerous guy. So that when um, when uh, Ben uh, met Virginia uh, out in L.A., uh, <clears throat> since uh, that's where Joe Dodo was hanging out, um, there was um, uh, some consternation when uh, Virginia also took up with Ben because the fear was maybe they <laughs> would kill each other. Um but uh, Joe uh, uh, really regarded um, Virginia as a, um, as a sport, you know. Mm -hmm. a, 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 he was a sportsman, she was a sportswoman, and there wasn't really any great passion on either side. There was no love. Um, yeah, there wasn't really any love. But there was, apparently, from early on, between Ben and Virginia, <clears throat> um, I think just the fact that... Um, um, you know, Virginia wouldn't take any guff from him and, and that she had her own money by now. She, you know, had uh, closets full of clothes and furs. Eventually she would be said to have uh, 75 furs. Um, you know, she didn't need Ben. Um, she, she was drawn to him. She liked him, but, and, and they would have these, you know, ferocious uh, episodes of, of, of anger and arguing followed by great makeup sex Sure. And, um, you know, it, 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 it worked, uh, for the two of them. And one of the, 
uh, bits of color that I found just so charming from the uh, from that Dean Jennings biography is that they um, <clears throat> both became enamored of this um, uh, commercial novel at the time, uh, which was about uh, these characters who were going to die but be reunited in heaven. And um, uh, apparently Ben and Virginia knew this short novel almost by heart, and they they saw themselves as the protagonists of it. They they were probably going <clears> to, <throat> you know, not come out of this alive, but uh, but they would they would be together forever, sort of thing. And they, you know, here they were, uh, hardened gangsters engaging in this kind of sentimental claptrap. Um, but uh, but it appealed to them, <clears throat> and um, in fact, uh, Virginia also saw herself as. Uh, a prototype for uh, Becky Sharp, uh, mm-hmm, the Fair, famous yeah. uh, protagonist, or the famous heroine of uh, the novel Vanity Fair. Um, so they were engaging in some serious uh, also you know, two, fantasizing. Uh, two autodidacts, if you will. Neither one of them had much formal education, yet they aspired to, uh, to learn. Yeah. I want to jump yeah. a little bit ahead because we, we, sure. we do have a little bit of a time constraint. And I don't know. <laughs> yes. No, we could, you and I could be talking all day. Uh, yeah. And I, I think there's much that you write about in terms of Billy Wilkerson, who was one of the first people to be yeah. involved with the Flamingo, the hotel that, that Bugsy envisioned yep. and created. Um, but I, I, and there's lots to be read in the book about that. But more to the point, he was yep. about $5 million over budget on building that. And uh, yep. as you said, uh, Meyer kept, you know, kept helping him, supporting him. And finally, it got out of control. So June 20th, 1947, four days yep. before I was born, uh, uh, Bugsy is sitting with the uh, open window, or blinds yep. are opened in his home in Hollywood. And bada bing, bada bing, what happens? Yeah. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's an amazing moment. Um, certainly, one of the great moments of of gangland uh, in America. Um, in, in a way, the most amazing part of it is that uh, Ben was just sitting there with his back to this, you know, the bay window of the house, the very big, elegant house that Virginia had rented um, uh, some months before. Virginia had actually rather mysteriously just decided to go over to Paris. Uh, this is June, right? <clears throat> She'd never been to Paris, but somehow maybe she got a little tip that she should leave the premises and go to Paris. Uh, and she she told Ben that he was welcome to use the place. In fact, she even gave him this golden key. Um, <clears throat> and so he was uh, there that evening uh, With reading the papers, the evening papers, after having had... Uh, 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 dinner with Virginia Hill's um, uh, Her brother. younger brother. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> he clearly felt no danger whatsoever. And, and, and you have to wonder why, because, you know, the Flamingo had opened in December, uh, such a disaster that it had to close, then it opened again. But, you know, for, for months, literally, it was a money-losing proposition. The gangsters were really pissed off. I mean, his investors from back east um, <clears throat> let alone the fact that he, you know, rumor had it that he was now skimming uh, the the uh, the money from the <clears throat> the whole operation, and um, and yet he wasn't scared. Yet he was sitting there, and I can only surmise that it has something to do with the the flamingo finally, after like four or five mm-hmm. months, turning uh, turning 
turning it around, going from red to black, he thought, well, now, you know, it's all going to be fine. But it wasn't fine because there was some guy standing in the shadows out there with uh, quite untypically a, uh, a carbine, a rifle. <clears throat> and as the wonderful uh, writer Nick Pileggi uh, told me in our interview, uh, he said, you know, uh, nobody ever killed each other with a rifle in the mafia. <laughs> right. uh, you, you used a handgun or you brought someone out to the desert, and, <clears throat> you know, or you put them, put their feet in cement, <laughs> whatever, whatever you did, you didn't, um, uh, you didn't use a rifle. And yet this person did. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, nine bullets tore through, uh, through Ben's head and body, um, and, and that was it for him. Um, His eyeball uh, went about 10 meters across the room and hit the wall. Unbelievable. <clears throat> yes, Just like I know. Mo Green, um, but a different setup. Exactly. The, the, the Mo Green thing was an extrapolation of that sure. in The Godfather. Um, but, you know, it, it, it gave rise to all sorts of uh, theories as to, as to who killed Ben and why. And I offer my own theory— um, which you know has to do with that carbine. <clears throat> I think that uh, it was actually Virginia Hill's uh, younger brother who may have um, shot Ben, uh, partly because the acrimony between Ben and Virginia had grown uh, so much that there was a fair amount of, so one reads, physical uh, abuse. Uh, the younger brother uh, may also have been instructed by Virginia uh, to do this because she was suspected of having skimmed a lot of money too and put it in a, in a bank account in Switzerland. And she would have known that she was uh, in the crosshairs herself if she didn't do something to win, get her back in the good graces of, of her, uh, of her late, of her Bo's gangsters. And, Michael, and the, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so I, no, I just want to say that uh, one thing that I've noticed in this conversation is you always refer to him as Ben. I'm wondering yeah. if you're afraid he's going to pop out of the grave and, <laughs> and blow you away for not, for not, you know, if you were to call him Bugsy. I am, Terrence. Uh, okay. uh, God knows if, I, if I'd been alive at the time, I would have been very careful to call him Ben. And Meyer Lansky never called him anything but Ben. Um, you know, yes, people around him <laughs> learned... Uh, learned what his name was, and if they wanted to survive, they uh, kept it in mind. On that note, I want to thank my guest, Michael Schneerson. The book is Bugsy Siegel, The Dark Side of the American Dream. It's been fun. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, it has, Terrence. Thank you. Thanks a lot for supporting don't, the book. Don't go away. Hang on a second. Okay. Uh, okay. All right, the genius was able to shut this down, I think. Yeah, we should be good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of, there's so much to talk about, you know, and, rel uh. you know, relatively short book. But I don't know if you got my, uh, my email. You know, I have a little connection to the mob here. I don't know if Remind you saw the email. Me. I, I... <clears throat> my grandmother. Tell me. Huh? No, my, well, my, my uncles in Brooklyn were all in a, in a, in a, in a liquor business. I don't know, they weren't uh, gun runners, per se, or, or bootleggers. Yeah. But my, my uncle owned a, uh, a bar in, on Utica Avenue in, uh, huh. in, in, in Brooklyn uh, called the Track Bar. And uh -huh. uh, uh, Harry Strauss and, uh, huh. and, and Abe Rellis and Pittsburgh, you know, it's Pittsburgh Phil, obviously, and Bugsy Goldstein huh. with two Gs. Son's, son's yes, father was yes. a rabbi. Uh, it took me a while to 
<laughs> Figure that one out, yeah. Anyway, three, they would hang out there regularly. And uh, one night, my uncle uh, Bucky, the owner, is at the bar with my grandfather, and my uncle Midgey's behind the bar. And Rellis walks in directly into a booth where my grandmother is sitting. He didn't know my grandmother. And he sits down uninvited. He says, what you reading? She says, story of philosophy, you know, Will and Ariel Durant. Uh, she says, I read that when I was in the joint. At which point she looks at him and says, that's where you belong. Now, at that point, you know, <laughs> the smoke is coming out of his ears. He stands up. He, he walks outside to get his bearings. And my uncle walks out. Uncle Bucky walks out. He says, Abe. It's my sister. You touch her, I gotta kill you. Obviously, he didn't. You know, I mean, it was just, you know. So, I have my little Labrellis uh, story. That's I, a great story. Well, yeah. of course, that <clears throat> the whole story of uh, Abe's demise is a wonderful one. Well, you know, Boyton, Boyton Plakis, played by uh, Henry Morgan. It's a 1961 movie with Stuart Whitman, my Brit. And uh, Peter Falk got an Academy Award nomination, the only actor to receive one for a B film. Yeah, that's right. And I put that in, the Peter Falk, not the B film, but you're, you're absolutely yeah, right. Did... Was, it, was, it was a book, uh, and then it was obviously the film that he was terrific in. By the but, way, yeah. um, I was uh, interviewed with another uh, recently published uh, gangster book writer, <clears throat> and I wonder if you've seen that book. It's all about Abe Rellis. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, you might want to uh, seek that guy out. I have his name somewhere if you want it, but uh, his book came out a few months ago, and it's entire. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.